The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Mueller said more than most people heard. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, July 25th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. He said it before, but the fact that he said it again makes it of great concern. President Trump was speaking to a conservative group of politically active high school students on the day before Robert Mueller would testify for seven hours on national television. Trump talked to the students for nearly an hour and a half, but part of his speech became a viral video, the part about Article 2 of the Constitution. As explained here before, Article 2 outlines the powers of a president, but also outlines Congress's duty to oversee the president and its power to impeach him if he abuses his powers. But Trump was focused on the part about presidential powers. Trump told the young people there was no collusion, no obstruction. Then, he continued, I have Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. He is wrong, and he was feeding the students disinformation. Article 2 does not give a president total power. But Trump has said the same words before to ABC News last month when he was asked about wanting to fire Robert Mueller. And earlier this month, talking about the Mueller report, Trump referred to, quote, a thing called Article 2. Nobody ever mentions Article 2, said Trump, adding, it gives me all these rights at a level nobody's ever seen before. The next day, some of those students would be watching at least part, if not all, of the testimony of special counsel Robert Mueller. The president was up early as usual yesterday, tweeting angrily about the Mueller testimony hours before it would begin. He didn't come downstairs all day as he continued to tweet his reactions to the hearings. After saying he would not watch, then saying he might a little, Trump never left the upstairs residence. We know this because there were no events on the president's schedule yesterday and because the Marine Guard normally posted outside the West Wing wasn't there. Without a president in the Oval Office, there would be no need for that extra guard. So the president stayed upstairs in the residence all day, like millions of Americans, glued to the Mueller hearings. He only came downstairs late in the day to speak with reporters in the White House driveway. Former FBI Director Robert S. Mueller III was once known as Bobby Three Sticks for the Roman numeral three at the end of his name drawn with three sticks, but that was years ago. As he fast approaches his 75th birthday, the Marine awarded a Purple Heart for his service in Vietnam was not as sharp as he'd been in his previous 88 appearances before Congress. It had been six years since Mueller had testified. It was not his choice to be there, and he refused to answer nearly 200 questions. He had trouble hearing. He asked that questions be repeated. He stumbled and stammered at times. His morning appearance was described as weak, followed by a much stronger testimony in the afternoon. That may be because the hearings occurred in the wrong order. It was the afternoon session that was about Mueller's number one job to investigate whether Russia had interfered with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. It was the afternoon session that covered part one of the Mueller report. So let's turn yesterday upside down and begin there. Despite the harsh reviews for the weaknesses in Mueller's testimony, Mueller did the unexpected. He said he would not go outside the boundaries of his report, but he did. What he said in yesterday's hearing that he did not say in his report is that it is unethical, criminal, and unpatriotic to accept foreign assistance in a political campaign after earlier testifying that the 2016 Trump campaign had done exactly that, welcoming help from Russia and WikiLeaks. What Mueller said in this much-anticipated hearing that he had not said in his report is that Trump, Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, and others had been compromised by Russia because they were subject to Russian blackmail, with Russia knowing that Trump associates were lying to investigators and the American people. Mueller had not said in his report, but did say yesterday, that WikiLeaks is a hostile foreign intelligence service that Trump praised and encouraged. Problematic, said Mueller, is an understatement. Mueller agreed that Trump had lied when he claimed he had been cleared of collusion because Mueller said his investigation, quote, did not address collusion. For much of the hearing, Mueller confirmed things that some Americans know, but that most Americans don't. 
He confirmed that Russia did interfere with the 2016 election, is interfering, quote, even as we sit here, and expects to do so in the 2020 campaign. Mueller emphasized the seriousness of the attack and the need to attend to it. He said more needs to be done. Last night, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell yet again stopped a vote on a bill to address election interference from foreign sources. Outside the four corners of his report, Mueller testified yesterday that he fears that foreign help for U.S. political campaigns is the new normal. Mueller confirmed that Russia's hacking and its phony social media posts were executed to help Trump get elected, that Russia wanted Trump to win in 2020. He testified that Russian interference is not a hoax and that his investigation was not a witch hunt, again directly contradicting the president's frequent repeated claims. Mueller had already confirmed in the morning session that Trump's campaign manager Paul Manafort had shared polling information with Konstantin Kalimnik, who was known to have ties to Russian intelligence. In the afternoon, he confirmed that Trump, Manafort, and Flynn sought personal profit during the campaign and lied about it to investigators and the American people. Mueller testified that the Moscow Hotel Tower project stood to make Trump millions of dollars after having earlier confirmed that Trump had lied during the campaign, saying he had no business ties with Russia. And although he has said it before, for many Americans, yesterday was the first time they'd heard Mueller say that he did not exonerate the president of obstruction. He said the president's claim to the contrary is a lie. But Mueller had not said in his report that Trump could be indicted for obstruction upon leaving office. Still, he said it yesterday. Mueller confirmed that lies by Trump associates had materially impeded his investigation and that Trump's efforts to have him removed as special counsel in and of themselves constitute an obstructive act. And although he would not use the I word, Mueller agreed that impeachment is one of the constitutional processes to which he referred in his report as the only way to prosecute a sitting president. His testimony had brought new calls for impeachment from House Democrats, with now more than 90 on board, and Mueller opened new avenues of investigation for the lawmakers. At Republican accusations that Mueller's investigators were angry Democrats, the former special counsel bristled. After enduring lectures from Republicans throughout the day questioning the legitimacy of this Marine veteran's investigation, Mueller spoke in defense of his hiring practices, saying his standard is integrity, not politics. At the end of the day, Robert Mueller had testified for nearly seven hours, at least two hours longer than the five hours to which he had agreed. It was likely the last time we'll see him speak publicly. It marked the end of Mueller's long career of service to this country. And seven hours after Mueller's testimony began, Donald Trump finally came downstairs. In the beginning, which in this case is the summer of 2016, the chanting of Trump supporters was a tidy three-word phrase aimed specifically at Hillary Clinton. Lock her up, they chanted, led by soon-to-be short-term National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, who now himself is destined for prison. The Trump campaign would go on to get a lot of mileage out of a phrase it had never even committed to print. Lock her up, they chanted again and again at Trump rallies, even after the election, even after Hillary Clinton was no longer a threat to the Trump presidency. It was too good a phrase to retire. The Red Hats loved it. It was simple. It had a nice rhythm for repeating with just three words. And it came in handy again when the president tore into the professor who'd accused then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault. When Trump ripped Professor Christine Blasey Ford at one of his rallies, the Red Hats chanted, lock her up. Later, when Trump was at another rally, he tore into senior California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein for leaking documents to the media. Guess what the Red Hats chanted? People love the oldies. As it turned out, lock her up didn't have to be just for Hillary Clinton. It could be any her. It could be any woman. The phrase didn't need a name when a pronoun would serve even better. As a linguist explained to the Washington Post, a name is a person. A pronoun is a thing, or at least seems less personal. Locking up a person is one way to get them out of our lives. Another is to get them out of our country. The Red Hats now have a phrase for that, too. It began with a tweet, as so many of our dramas do, 
Again, using a pronoun instead of names, Trump singled out four newly elected members of Congress to represent the entire Democratic Party, even though they don't. All of the women are American citizens, but none of the women are white, which is what made the tweet and the chant that followed so chilling. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, he tweeted. Send her back, they chanted at yet another rally just three days after the tweet that inspired it. The chanting began while Trump was telling more lies about one of the women he'd targeted with his racist tweet. The chanting began as he spoke of Minnesota Congresswoman Elon Omar, who he accused of supporting al-Qaeda, which is blatantly untrue. By the time Trump had finished that sentence, this new simple three-word chant had already been repeated at least five times. Trump paused in his speech and stepped back from the microphone to take it all in. He would bask in the chanting he loved so much for eight more rounds of Send Her Back. In three of those rounds, he nodded his head in rhythm. I told you it had a good beat. You could almost dance to it. For many, the chanting was eerily reminiscent of Germany in the late 1930s. There was a fervor to it, every bit as strong as Lock Her Up. It was the same tune with new lyrics, but once again it was about her. And that pronoun has already proven its value, that it can be used again. And on this particular occasion, it was also a sizable distraction from the video that had surfaced earlier in the day of Trump partying with accused child molester Jeffrey Epstein. The video included footage of Trump grabbing women and patting at least one on the butt. Meanwhile, the fire of racism had been stoked. The crowd of red hats chanted and cheered, while people of reason and goodwill shuddered with fear and dread. Because in that crowd of red hats were children. And it made the children laugh and play to chant, send her back on that ugly day. Before the Wednesday night rally, Trump's staff made it a point to warn him about the possible dangers of getting the crowd too worked up on the subject of Elon Omar. And although we couldn't see it publicly, we now know that Trump's stoking of that racial fire last Wednesday night made some Republicans and members of Trump's family nervous. Daughter Ivanka and First Lady Melania each had a word with him about it, reports the New York Times. And under pressure from Republican lawmakers, Vice President Mike Pence had a word with him about it. So Trump made a surprising pivot. He threw his red hats under the bus. I didn't say that. They did, he told reporters the day after the Send Her Back rally. Trump said he was not happy with the chant, contrary to the video evidence. So reporters pressed him on why he allowed it to go on for eight more chants of send her back. Why didn't he stop his people from chanting? I think I did. I started speaking very quickly, Trump said, in another provable lie. In truth, and on the video, he stood and waited for the chant to die its natural death. Republicans generally criticized the chant but insisted that neither the president nor his words are racist even though the House of Representatives had just condemned the president's words as precisely that. So that was Wednesday and Thursday. By Friday, Trump had pivoted again. Those congresswomen, he told reporters outside the White House, can't get away with criticizing the U.S. The problems with that statement are multifold. First, they weren't criticizing the U.S. They were criticizing the man who currently occupies the Oval Office. Second, they can get away with saying almost anything because this is the United States of America, and under our Constitution, free speech is protected from suppression, even by this president. And by Friday, Trump was pulling his supporters out from under the bus, calling them incredible people, incredible patriots, to avoid paying a political price for throwing them under the bus in the first place. Trump was back to his racist attack on these duly elected members of Congress, again telling them to leave the country if they don't like it under his rule, and he called them racists. A day after, a Trump advisor had gone on TV to say that the term racist is used to silence and punish people they disagree with, Trump himself was using the word, accusing these female lawmakers of being un-American. But it was Donald Trump who ran with the slogan, Make America Great Again, implying that it wasn't already. 
It was Trump who, in his inaugural speech, spoke of American carnage and Chinese economic superiority and spoke of empty factories dotting the U.S., quote, like tombstones. If history is to be the judge of whether Trump the man is racist, then history will have to include a clip from the Howard Stern Show. It was April of 2005, and Trump was looking for a gimmick to goose the ratings on The Apprentice. The idea he pitched on the air that morning was to pit an all-white team against an all-black team. Howard, with mixed emotions, approved of the idea. His news anchor sidekick Robin Quivers, however, told Trump, I think you're going to have a riot. Trump, however, couldn't see the racism for the ratings. It would be the highest-rated show on television, he replied. I would watch, said Howard. You'd have to, said Robin, because you'd want to know when the riot starts. History would also reflect Trump the landlord in the 1970s when he was accused of refusing to rent apartments to African Americans. Trump denied that charge, but settled out of court. History will probably note the Trump of the 1980s who called for the return of the death penalty inspired by the case of five black and Hispanic teenagers accused of raping a jogger in New York Central Park The men were later exonerated while Trump was busy challenging the legality of casinos operated by Native American tribes in the 90s. The blacks love me, bragged Trump in the 90s, as rappers like Puff Daddy and Snoop Dogg used his name in their raps to represent wealth and fame. By the 2000s, Trump was thinking about the White House and tweeting that Obama was born in Africa, another lie. In the campaign, he slurred Mexicans and called for a Muslim ban. As president, he tried repeatedly to implement that Muslim ban and build a wall to keep out the Mexicans he portrayed as drug dealers and rapists. He gave props to both sides at a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that took a life and featured Ku Klux Klansmen armed with guns and clubs. He called African nations shithole countries and said Nigerians visiting the U.S. would never go back to their huts. These shall be recorded by historians as well. This is the same Trump who's cozied up to every black supporter he could find, be it Ben Carson, Kanye West, the supporter at his rallies he referred to as Michael the Black Man, and to, he hopes, rap artist ASAP Rocky, who got arrested for assault in Sweden. In the fall of 2016, Trump noticed a sign in the crowd over his shoulder that read, Blacks for Trump. It was being held by Florida's Maurice Simonette, who traveled the country to appear in campaign rallies often enough to become known to Trump as Michael the Black Man. What Trump and the Red Hats did not know is that Maurice had been charged and acquitted in two murders in the 1990s and that he once belonged to a violent religious cult. But it was in the days of TV's The Apprentice that Donald Trump would meet a black woman known as Omarosa. And although she would serve in his administration for a while, today Omarosa says she was wrong to believe in him. She now says Trump is, quote, a disgusting, filthy, petty racist who is trying to start a race war. And what we saw this week, says Omarosa, is just the beginning. NBC television, by the way, never let Trump use producer Mark Burnett's idea to pit an all-white team against an all-black team on The Apprentice. Yes, It was Burnett's idea. But CBS, under different management than it is today, approved of the idea for its reality series Survivor the very next year, a black team versus a white team. Mark Burnett produces that show, too. Omarosa says Trump told her from the very beginning it was Burnett's idea. But quoting her, Trump was champing at the bit to do it. Donald Trump is finally using that race gimmick he wanted to use on The Apprentice. This is real life, real government, with real consequences. But Trump never heard Robin Quiver's warning, or at least it never soaked in. Dangerous as it is, he would use what he sees as a clever gimmick to boost not television ratings, but his own political approval rating. Former Republican congressional aide Kurt Bardella says his only tool is racism. The American people have a simple choice. Either you support racism or you don't. Quoting him, we're about to find out how racist America really is. A lot of America's white majority is afraid, afraid that 
the way things are going, as experts project, they will lose their majority status in the next 25 years. They don't like the way things are going, afraid the country will lose its customs and values, and that with all the focus on minority groups, they, the whites, are now the victims of reverse discrimination. Surveys show that nearly one in three feel so left out they favor having a white history month. A third of white people in this country want white history month. Their reactions to the nation's demographic shift range from mild nervousness to outright anger. These are the flames being fanned by the current president. People are more inclined to vote when they have someone to enthusiastically vote against. While many Americans go to the polls next year to vote against Trump, most Republicans will be fired up to vote against the Democrats, who Trump's portrayed as radically un-American, using the faces of four minority lawmakers. It's now part of his 2020 strategy, and to some degree, it appears to be working. Approval of Republican voters has risen since the racist tweets to between 72 and 80 percent. He's still getting very real help from the so-called Fox News Channel, where Laura Ingram said the president was on fire. Sean Hannity also praised the rally and Trump's attack on the four women of color, which he portrayed as, quote, the radical leaders of this Democratic extreme socialist party. It was, after all, Fox that was the inspiration for Trump's original racist tweets. Tucker Carlson had attacked Elon Omar, and Trump apparently wanted in on the fun. As pointed out here last week, Trump has a real path to re-election in 2020. Since then, a New York Times analysis shows that Trump could win a second four-year term with an even bigger loss in the popular vote than he sustained in 2016. Trump lost the popular vote to Clinton by just over 2%. The Times analysis says he could win in 2020, even if he loses to the Democrat by 5%. Thanks to the Electoral College and the mostly white battleground states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. At the moment, the Trump campaign is not only ahead of where it was in 2015, it's ahead of the Democrats, especially online. It's been clear since early last year that the Trump re-election campaign would rely heavily on social media. It's why marketing consultant Brad Parscale is Trump's 2020 campaign director. It was Parscale, as an underling, who engineered Trump's online operation in 2016 and who would take the most credit for that Electoral College win. In truth, it's all the same campaign that barely took a breather when Trump was sworn in. Trump filed for re-election that same day and began holding scores of campaign rallies. Only Beto O'Rourke spent more online in 2018 than Donald Trump, and the president wasn't even on the midterm ballot. In the first six months of this year, Trump spent well over $11 million on Facebook and Google ads, 12 times more than Obama had spent in 2011. Analyses of the Trump ads finds that more than half mention immigration and that nearly half target voters over the age of 65. More recent ads falsely accuse the Democratic Party of wasting taxpayers' money and embracing, quote, anti-Semite Elon Omar. Each part of that statement is either a lie or unproven. Congressman Omar, while critical of Israel, has made it clear she is not anti-Semitic. And Democrats aren't even spending money, much less wasting it, since Republicans currently control the government. Experts told reporters at The Guardian it's not that the Trump campaign is sophisticated at online marketing. It's just that it's so far ahead of all the other politicians. Industries spend 54% of their advertising dollars online. Trump spends 44%. Other politicians, 6 to 8%. Trump campaign director Brad Parscale also likes to conduct psychological experiments with people on social media to find out which ads work and which don't. He reportedly uses up to 60,000 versions of a single Facebook ad at once to better target those ads with a focus on disinformation and division, trying, as one expert told The Guardian, to demonize the other side. Meanwhile, in Florida, a proposal that only U.S. citizens vote in national elections will apparently be on that state's 2020 ballot. The ballot question's already gathered more than enough signatures to qualify, even though 
It's already against federal law for non-citizens to vote in a federal election. Florida's existing state constitution says citizens may vote. This ballot question inserts the word only. Only citizens may vote. Who's behind this clearly unnecessary ballot question? We'll likely never know many of them. But the campaign to get this question on the ballot has been driven by secret donors and political consultants from outside Florida, along with activists who have close ties to Donald Trump. The question, the ballot question, is so poorly written, it could be interpreted to mean it's okay for non-citizens to vote in Florida's local elections. Non-citizens are allowed to vote in local elections in some parts of the country. One of those parts is San Francisco, home of possible Democratic nominee Kamala Harris. It's a ballot question with so many uses for Republicans. What the proposal will do is get Florida Republicans to the polls in case they needed extra motivation. Florida Democrats, meanwhile, are left facing questions about why they oppose a law that requires only citizens vote. The organizer of the Florida ballot measure is a GOP political consultant in Arizona. He says he plans to propose this same ballot question in at least a dozen other states, red and purple, between now and Election Day next year. And because it's all funded with dark money, some of the sources of that money could be from other countries. Tonight, at the Trump International Hotel just down the street from the White House, Leading deniers of climate science will discuss the benefits of ending the Democrats' war on fossil fuels. A month ago, reports The Guardian, lobbyists from the oil and gas industry were checking into the president's hotel, paying premium prices for rooms so they could rest up for meetings with Trump cabinet officials and Republican leaders in the House. Pro-gun groups check in there as well, along with foreign delegations, even members of Congress and certainly Trump's own re-election campaign people. Its meeting rooms are frequently occupied by lobbyists, Republican donors, and any group hoping to please the president. They've come from Turkey and Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, and Malaysia. According to his financial disclosure forms, that hotel generated about $81 million for Trump's company last year. He got nearly $41 million just from that hotel. Daughter Ivanka made a cool $4 million off the place. Quoting a former Republican congressman, you have to be stupid to believe Trump and his family don't get reports about who's using the hotel. A lawsuit from Congress accusing Trump of violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution by profiting from his office is in play, but is currently held up by appeals. In the meantime, influence with the president remains for sale at the Trump International Hotel. It's important to remember that Donald J. Trump is the individual one cited in the federal charges against his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, who's now in prison. Prosecutors pursuing a case of illegal campaign contributions via hush money payments to Trump's alleged mistresses found that Trump had directed those payments. It is also important to remember that Trump's aides considered this investigation an even greater threat to his presidency than the Mueller probe. Late last week, prosecutors announced that they had concluded that investigation and that no one else, no one besides Michael Cohen, will be charged in that hush money to help the campaign scheme. Under Justice Department guidelines from a 40-year-old memo, a sitting president cannot be indicted. That's not in the Constitution. It's just a memo. Still, it's a memo that's been held near and dear by the Trump administration. But it wasn't just that memo that kept prosecutors from pursuing a case against the president. In order to convict someone of violating campaign finance laws, you have to be able to convince a jury that the person knew the law and broke it intentionally. And there's no evidence that Trump had any idea what he was doing other than silencing a woman who'd said she'd had sex with him. Once again, the legal victory goes to Team Trump, or so it appears on the surface. Those same new court papers released late last week also give damning new details, including how involved the president appears to have been in those illegal payments, the ones Cohen lied about landing him in prison. The documents show that Trump was in close contact with Cohen during the arrangement of the payments. Cohen and Trump spoke by phone twice the day before Stormy Daniels was paid $130,000 to stay quiet. Phone calls between the two men were rare at that point in the campaign, but... 
the day before the porn stars payoff, they were on the phone together twice. And within a half hour after that phone call, Cohen began opening a bank account so that he could transfer the money to the porn star's lawyer in a way that was disconnected from both him and Donald Trump. Cohen had gotten the money from the Trump organization, which likely accounts for others who may have been involved. Cohen and Trump spoke again by phone the day after the money had been wired in another unusual conversation. The feds only have records showing the calls were made and how long they lasted. The calls were not wiretapped, so no one but Trump and Cohen know what was actually said. And one of them is now in prison, while the other's in the Oval Office. All the while, the president was telling the American people that he knew nothing about the hush money payments. Prosecutors also now say they expanded this campaign finance investigation to include possible obstruction of justice by certain individuals, plural. The feds won't say who those individuals might be, but at least one name has been redacted from these newly released court documents. And although prosecutors say they won't be filing any more charges in the campaign finance case, they did not rule out more charges in the obstruction case connected to that primary investigation. Then-campaign spokeswoman Hope Hicks, we have learned from these documents, had a much greater role in the hush money discussion than we had known until now. Hicks was on the phone with Michael Cohen a lot, too, in the days leading up to the Stormy Daniels payoff, and she'd also chatted with National Enquirer publisher David Pecker. Later that same day, Donald Trump talked to Mr. Pecker as well, and Hicks was less than honest about her involvement in her recent testimony before Congress, which is now demanding that she come back to the Hill to clarify her inconsistent testimony. That's a polite congressional way of saying it appears you have lied to us. Want to try that again? After these new court papers dropped, Michael Cohen issued a statement from his prison cell in Otisville, New York. Quote, The conclusion of the investigation exonerating the Trump organization's role should be of great concern to the American people and investigated by Congress. Trump had made a promise to his supporters while at the same time instilling fear in the U.S. migrant community. He promised to deport millions of undocumented people, but then spoiled the surprise by announcing a nationwide sweep that immigration officials were unable to deliver. Instead of millions, officials targeted 2,000 migrants. During the agonizing wait for the raids to begin, the undocumented were told how they could protect themselves from the feds, while others fled to some other place to hide. And then the raids came, such as they were, not even three dozen people were arrested. It was just another week in deportation. The president cannot be happy that his administration has deported fewer people each year than did the Obama administration, even though Obama had only targeted convicted criminals, new arrivals, and repeat offenders, while Trump is out for everyone without papers. And the president could not have been happy about the outcome of last week's raids, huffing to reporters that more than 35 people had been arrested. We just didn't know about it. There's no evidence of truth in that claim. But we also know that the 35 people arrested last week have been put on a fast track, legally speaking. While most deportations have taken years to complete, those rounded up last week have been assigned to an accelerated court docket to get them out of the country inside of a year. The president likes the fast track. He likes this accelerated court docket. He's been trying to use it since the very first week in the White House. And then two days ago, on Tuesday of this week, the Trump administration implemented new deportation powers, allowing itself to deport people and revoke their asylum request without a judge, without a hearing. The decision to deport would be made by relatively low-level immigration officials on a local basis. Suddenly, nearly a third of a million people were targets for fast-track deportation, any undocumented person who can't prove they've been in this country at least two years. And unlike previous rules, this one applies all the way up to the Canadian border and from coast to coast. The old rule from the George W. Bush administration was limited to within 100 miles of the Mexican border. This change alone opens up 300,000 people to arrest. Tens of thousands may actually be arrested. 
They will then be deported by low-level immigration workers without a hearing, even if they have family here and jobs here and no criminal record here, and they lose their shot at asylum as slim as it already was. The week before, the Trump administration had removed interpreters from deportation courtrooms and started denying asylum to Central American immigrants who hadn't requested it in Mexico and been denied there. The denials here would also affect Cubans, Haitians, and others who crossed the southern border without papers. And yesterday, a federal judge ruled the U.S. must continue to accept asylum seekers in spite of the new Trump rule. The new asylum denial policy would have cut to virtually zero the number of people we take in as they flee from persecution and death. That was the plan, according to an administration source to Politico, a plan engineered by the architect of the Trump Muslim ban, presidential advisor Stephen Miller. Not surprisingly, innocent, bona fide U.S. citizens have gotten caught up in Trump's immigration roundup, including an American soldier and a Texas teenager. 18-year-old Francisco Galicia had all of his papers on him when he and some friends were stopped at an immigration checkpoint in the Lone Star State. He had his birth certificate, his state ID card, and his Social Security card. ICE and Border Patrol agents didn't believe Francisco was a citizen, however. He's brown-skinned, and they believe his papers were phony. So they took him in, and they kept him for three weeks. Francisco Galicia missed three weeks of his summer while in the custody of his own United States government, despite being a citizen innocent of any crime. Immigration officials say they're studying the case, and last night they released the boy with no apologies. It's happened before to Peter Sean Brown, a U.S. citizen born in Philadelphia. He found himself in ICE detention in Florida. Marine veteran Gilmar Ramos Gomez was born and raised in Michigan, but even this Marine spent days in ICE custody. There have, in fact, been 1,400 cases in which ICE detained and then released American citizens. Representatives from two of the world's biggest religions stood up this week to the cruel results we've now seen and heard for ourselves from Trump's immigration policies. On Thursday of last week, hundreds of Catholic nuns, priests, and parishioners staged a protest in the rotunda of the Senate office building. Some carried photos of children who have died during detention by the Trump administration and recited the children's names. Seventy of those protesters were arrested The sound of the Lord's Prayer echoed through that rotunda as they chanted it in chorus. Especially notable was the part about forgiving our trespasses and those who trespass against us. They called it the Catholic Day of Action, even though Catholics, like the rest of America, are divided on immigration. On Tuesday of last week, nearly a dozen Jewish protesters were arrested for refusing to leave the lobby of Immigration and Custom Enforcement Headquarters in Washington, D.C., Ten protesters had linked arms and refused to let pass the ICE workers who were trying to get in and out of the building, while dozens of other protesters outside chanted, close the concentration camps, never again is now. Quit your jobs, they chanted at the workers, stand with us. They had marched from the Capitol Mall to the main entrance of ICE headquarters for the exact purpose of disrupting operations there. Jews and others have been protesting for weeks outside the ICE offices in Chicago, L.A., New Jersey, and Philadelphia. And although well over a hundred of them have been arrested so far, organizers say there will likely be more protests. While some have been scolded for comparing Trump's teeming migrant camps to the concentration camps of the Nazis, these activist Jews cannot help but see a similarity. Quoting Rabbi Arthur Wasco of Philadelphia, who was part of the D.C. protest, concentration camps over time turn into death camps if you don't stop them. Rabbi Wasco made the trip to D.C. from Philadelphia in the summer heat at the age of 85. He wore a T-shirt that read, Resisting Tyrants Since Pharaoh. And while the religious are standing up to the Trump administration, they are also standing up to a Baptist church in Appomattox, Virginia. 
in the same week that Trump said those four non-white members of Congress should love his America or leave the country, the pastor of the Friendship Baptist Church posted on the sign out front, America, love it or leave it. But no one showed up to hear this Sunday's sermon by Pastor E.W. Lucas. The pews were empty at his 11 a.m. service. His congregation had already walked out of the early service. Pastor Lucas says he stands behind his sign, even if he stands there alone. The president's words and deeds on race and immigration have brought hatred and the threat of violence into the public square. In the New Orleans suburb of Gretna, Louisiana, Two police officers have been fired. One of the officers had liked a post by another, suggesting that one of the targets of Trump's racist attacks, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, be shot. This vile idiot needs a round, wrote then-officer Charlie Rispoli. Like, clicked former fellow officer Angel Verisco. The police chief calls the incident disturbing and an embarrassment to our department alluding to a violent act against a sitting U.S. Congresswoman, a member of our government, end quote. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez later said of Trump, he's creating an environment where people can get hurt. And while Trump was condemning Democrats as socialists, he was cozying up to communists. It's presumed that it was the Chinese government that sent an organized mob of men in white shirts to savagely beat a lawmaker, some journalists, and innocent bystanders during the pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong. An American president would typically side with democracy. Trump sided with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, saying, I think President Xi has acted very responsibly. He's allowed the protest to go on for a long time. Trump was, in that moment, giving Xi a blessing to keep bashing heads while doing battle with American lawmakers and journalists. North Korea fired two more short-range missiles off its coast yesterday our time as Trump administration nuclear talks remained stalled despite glowing letters between Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and their meeting in the demilitarized zone three weeks ago. The short-range missiles are capable of carrying nuclear warheads. As if being citizens of Afghanistan weren't challenging enough, this week they heard the American president say he could end the war there in a week, that he could wipe it off the face of the earth, but that, quote, I just don't want to kill 10 million people. He made that comment at the White House in the presence of reporters and the prime minister of Pakistan, which has nuclear weapons of its own, and an actual population of 37 million people in Afghanistan, not 10. Good morning, Afghanistan. The president of Afghanistan put in a call to Washington immediately to get um, clarification about Trump's off-the-cuff remark. Explanation, please. U.S. troops have been fighting a war against the Taliban in Afghanistan for nearly 18 years, ever since 9-11. It's the winner and still champion for the longest U.S. war ever. And Afghanistan, with Trump as U.S. president, is apparently only a theoretical week away from losing 10 million people, or the entire 37 million people who live there, if it is indeed to be, quote, wiped off the face of the earth. Trump, meanwhile, has vetoed a bill supported by Republicans and Democrats that would have punished Saudi Arabia for its murder of a journalist. With Trump's veto, he can now proceed with his national emergency weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. Lawmakers are angry that Trump went around them on this decision as he had once before, just not sufficiently angry to garner enough votes to override his veto. And then on Tuesday of this week, the Senate voted to confirm Mark Esper as our defense secretary just as tensions ramp up with Iran. Esper, a soldier turned lobbyist, is our first confirmed secretary of defense in over seven months. That's partly why he got confirmed, despite his work for defense contractor Raytheon and his refusal to recuse himself from decisions involving Raytheon as defense secretary even though he did recuse himself from those decisions while he served as Secretary of the Army. Esper not only arrives during the Iran tensions, but he inherits a Pentagon that has been without actual leadership since December. 
There was major breaking news as this program was being published. The Trump Justice Department, under Attorney General William Barr, is reinstating the federal death penalty, immediately ordering the execution of five prisoners. The federal government abandoned capital punishment 20 years ago. Salon.com's Bob Seska has been following the week's events, even as he takes a long overdue week off. He'll return here next week as I return to his show on Tuesday at bobseska.com. What we have suspected has now been supported by evidence. The drug industry ran a drug ring every bit as illegal as that of any organized gang. We now know how pharmaceutical companies and distributors and drugstores all contributed to the nation's addictions, deaths, heartache, and medical expenses caused by a flood of opioids. Appalachia was especially hard hit with all of these things, and Anthony Rattini had a lot to do with it. He ran the pharmaceutical distribution company Miami Lucan, and during his tenure, that company shipped powerful narcotics for non-medical use to more than 200 pharmacies across West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, and Tennessee. Rotini and the company's former compliance officer were convicted last week along with two pharmacists from West Virginia who had placed especially large orders with Miami Lucan because they knew they could get them. The distributor knew it was breaking the law, having ignored repeated warnings from the Drug Enforcement Administration. The company has admitted delivering more than five and a half million opioid pills to a town of just 380 people over the six-year period of 2005 to 2011. Most of the pills were shipped to Save Right Pharmacies. Its owner went to jail for helping a local doctor run a pill mill that attracted prospective street dealers from hundreds of miles away. We now see the drug industry for what it had become, the dealers and pushers of the 90s and beyond. In the lawsuits against drug companies, new documents have come to light. Internal DEA documents, including a round of emails between a wholesale drug distributor and representatives from one of the country's biggest opioid makers. Keep them coming, wrote the distributor to the manufacturer's rep. Flying out of here, he wrote. It's like people are addicted to these things or something. Oh, wait, he says people are. Just like Doritos, responded the drug rep, just keep eating, we'll make more. His company had manufactured nearly 29 billion opioid pills between 2006 and 2012, a little over a third of the number that flooded the nation. That one company supplied two-thirds of Florida's demand. Other internal emails revealed from other companies show that some in the industry tried to object to the direction the business had gone. Concerns were expressed within McKesson and Cardinal Health. There are horror stories from Walgreens and CVS as well. From the top to the bottom of that industry, there is enough blame to go around. And it was in the midst of this avalanche of pills that executives from the five biggest drug distribution companies testified to Congress under oath that they did not believe they had in any way contributed to the opioid epidemic. One by one, they said no until they got to the guy from Miami Lucan. Yes, he said, yes, his company had contributed to the opioid crisis. His company had already been caught red-handed, so there was no saying no. The other guys, however, were lying. The guys from McKesson and Cardinal and Smith and Amerisource Bergen, lying. They also testified they shouldn't be held responsible for the actions of people who abused their drugs. Lying under oath to Congress, we now know, thanks to the current lawsuits against the drug companies and to some terrific investigative journalism at the Washington Post. A funny thing happened on the way to New Hampshire not ha-ha funny, more like irony tripping over its shoelaces funny. Vice President Mike Pence was on his way to the presidential primary state of New Hampshire to talk about the nation's opioid crisis and the drugs pouring into the Granite State. There, he would meet with, among others, former New York Giants player Jeff Hatch, who had spoken publicly for years about his own struggle with drugs and alcohol, a struggle that ended his NFL career. In time, Jeff Hatch would become the business development director for a chain of recovery centers that provide treatment for substance abuse. 
He called for more money for programs to help student athletes beat their addictions. And Hatch was just about to meet with the vice president of the United States in a roundtable discussion about the drugs flowing into New Hampshire. But a not-ha-ha funny thing happened as Mike Pence was boarding Air Force Two destination New Hampshire. It was only then that we learned Pence's trip had been canceled due to an emergency. The president and vice president were fine, we were assured, but the White House wouldn't say why Pence's trip had been canceled after he'd already boarded the plane. The White House wouldn't say what had happened. Ex-reality TV host Donald Trump told reporters, you'll know in about two weeks, that was a very interesting problem they had up there in New Hampshire. Interesting indeed. Now, two weeks after the trip that was canceled for an unexplained emergency, the cancellation has been explained and the explanation couldn't be more clear. Former NFLer Jeff Hatch, the anti-addiction crusader who was about to meet with the VP, has since pleaded guilty to being part of the reason that drugs were flowing into New Hampshire. Hatch is now facing four years in prison for moving over $100,000 worth of fentanyl from Massachusetts to New Hampshire. He has agreed to cooperate with the feds in exchange for a lighter sentence. He's agreed to help the feds catch dealers higher up in this drug ring. And now we know why Pence's trip to New Hampshire was canceled after he had already boarded the vice presidential jet. For once, Donald Trump was right. It was two weeks until we knew. And to quote the president, that was a very interesting problem they had up there in New Hampshire. The Trump administration's plan to let people have and keep junk insurance policies for up to three years instead of three months is moving forward. The so-called short-term insurance doesn't fall within the Affordable Care Act, and it is, in fact, for people who can't afford a good policy from the Marketplace website, usually people who don't qualify for the tax subsidy. The insurance industry is among the unhappy since it reserved these policies for students between semesters and workers who were between jobs. Now, for the Trump administration, it's a new way to get around Obamacare. And while five states this year have cracked down on surprise charges from doctors and hospitals, they've all completely overlooked the ambulance industry, the single biggest source of many of those unexpected medical expenses. That's what the New York Times found. It also found an industry that has a kind of monopoly over its passengers. Patients can choose their hospitals, choose their doctors, but they almost never get to choose their ambulance. Fixing this is complicated since many ambulance services are run by cities and counties while others are private for-profit companies. In Bucks County, Pennsylvania, it's 1500 bucks for a basic ambulance ride plus 16 bucks a mile, and that's with an emergency medical service whose budget is partly funded by taxes plus fundraisers. The Senate on Tuesday finally passed a bill to keep health care funded for the next 70 years for the first responders now sick or dying from the toxins they inhaled in their work on or after 9-11. The bill passed 97 to 2 and adds billions of dollars to the care of tens of thousands of attack site workers. The two no votes came from Kentucky Republican Rand Paul and Utah Republican Mike Lee. After the vote, Comedian John Stewart, who had passionately argued for the bill's passage, was hugged by a former construction worker who was part of that 9-11 recovery team. Too many funerals, said Stewart, and too many hospices. Another new Trump proposal appeared Wednesday that would throw nearly 3 million people off food stamps. Now known as the SNAP program for Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, food stamps would be cut by ending automatic eligibility for those already getting other state or federal assistance. States are legally able and may be forced to change their own qualification standards to counter the effects of the Trump food stamp cutoff, which is still at least three months away. SNAP costs taxpayers $1.40 per person per meal. And it was a week ago today that the House voted to raise the federal minimum wage gradually to $15 an hour. 
That would double the minimum by 2025 for people working a 40-hour week. That current 725 an hour puts their annual incomes at 15 grand, about 10 grand below the poverty level for a family of four. If it were to pass, this minimum wage bill from the Democrats would be the first national increase in 10 years, the longest the country has ever gone without an increase since the minimum wage began in 1938. But it won't pass because it won't even get a vote in the Senate. Mitch McConnell's pledged to block all House measures, and especially this one. Republicans call the minimum wage a job killer and socialist. But the House passage of the bill is a message of intent to the voters about what could happen on a Democrat's watch in 2020. The governor of the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico has resigned after tens of thousands of citizens took to the streets following revelations of corruption in his administration, exacerbated by the governor's part in a crude conversation in a private chat room. The corruption charges stem from the millions of dollars designated to help Puerto Rico continue its recovery from Hurricane Maria. How hot is it? Thanks for the mammary and gators on meth in the final segment. Up next. I think I know why you're here. Because it's such a crucial time in our history, you understand the importance of honest, independent journalism and how important it is to support that. I'd be very grateful if you'd stop by my webpage, buzzburbank.com, and click that gold donate button, which helps cover expenses for research, equipment, and supplies. Your support is what keeps this newscast going, keeping it independent and free for the listening. If you're able, you can do as others have done and schedule a regular monthly donation or just kick in something when you can, when you feel like maybe you heard something you liked. On your desktop browser, that gold donate button's on the upper right at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, the button's just above the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you to those of you who support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Last month was the hottest June ever recorded. The heat that blistered Europe and India and even Alaska could be described as sweltering. The average global temperature was nearly one and three quarters degree hotter than the 20th century average. The hottest June in nearly a century and a half of record keeping, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which also says most of the hottest Junes ever have occurred in the last nine years. It was the 43rd consecutive June with above-average temperatures. 8 to 10% of the polar ice caps have melted, the Arctic warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. There are now 100 wildfires in the Arctic, which scientists say is unprecedented. Trump's EPA is allowing the more widespread use of a pesticide considered very highly toxic to the bees that pollinate three-fourths of our food supply. Sulfoxiflor is already blamed for gutting the nation's bee population. The annual rate of honeybee decline is up nearly 41% just since April. But climate change has also been a factor, with increased wildfires in the West, floods in the Midwest, and hurricanes in the Southeast. But pesticides have done as much damage or more, and the Trump administration says it is, quote, thrilled to approve the wider use of sulfoxiflor. And it was just last week at this time that the Trump EPA approved the farm industry chemical chlorpyrifos, which even the EPA agrees has been linked to serious health problems in children. Earlier this year, Trump's EPA refused to ban the known carcinogen asbestos. Elsewhere, scientists are scrambling to learn why monarch butterflies are dying so quickly. North America's biggest monarch population, which migrates between Mexico and the Midwest, has fallen 80%. There were a billion of the pollinating creatures in the 90s. There were only 200 million last year. And a smaller batch of monarchs that traveled between Washington State and California has been vanishing even faster. That population dropping by 98% last year. There are just 30,000 of them now. A senior biology researcher calls the decline catastrophic, adding they might not be able to bounce back. The Fish and Wildlife Service was asked five years ago to list the monarchs as endangered species. Fish and Wildlife is still reviewing that idea, saying the science is incomplete. In short, no one can say for sure right now why the monarchs are dying 
just that they are. Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Amazon will all be investigated for possible antitrust law violations, according to a Justice Department announcement two days ago. Justice says it will explore widespread concerns that consumers have expressed about search, social media, and some retail services online. The review is also prompted by fear in both parties that these tech giants have grown to be too big and powerful, and if so, to put that in check. Disney's eerily realistic remake of The Lion King is the top movie in the U.S. and Canada this week, opening with $185 million in ticket sales, despite less than stellar reviews. Of all the movie money made this year, 40% of it has been made by Disney. Avengers Endgame had a lot to do with that. It, this week, became the highest-grossing film on record, making more money than the previous record holder, Avatar. Disney's Toy Story 4 has made nearly a billion in North America, and Aladdin's made a billion worldwide. But wait, there's more. Later this year from Disney, Frozen 2, Maleficent, and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. It's good to be Disney. Other companies also make good movies. Preview them and buy your tickets, please, through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Actor Rutger Hauer, best known for his villainous roles, especially in the movie Blade Runner, has died at the age of 75. He was also in Batman Begins, the original theatrical version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and HBO's True Blood. We also note the passing this week of Louisiana funk musician Art Neville, a cultural icon for New Orleans. After years of failing health, he left us at age 81. Art Neville was part of the famed Neville Brothers, but he backed Dr. John, Robert Palmer, and Patti LaBelle. His band toured with the Stones, and Paul McCartney was a big fan. We celebrated this week the 50th anniversary of an Earthling first setting foot on the moon. Two days later, the father of Mission Control, Chris Kraft, died in Houston at the age of 95. Kraft was quoted as saying he was paralyzed with shock when he heard President Kennedy make an American moon landing a 10-year goal. Kraft was the man who gave top mathematicians, including African-American women, sway over the test pilot astronauts and even the NASA bigwigs. Kraft made it clear that Major Tom did not outrank ground control. 385 acres of NASA's trees have also died. More accurately, NASA had the trees cut down 385 acres worth of trees to give tourists a better view of the launch pads with the resurgence of manned space flights. NASA's Florida coastal property is largely a federal wildlife preserve where eagles nest. Now here's tick in your eye. In Prestonburg, Kentucky, Chris Prater went to a doctor about his eye irritation. In a diagnosis that was quick, the doc found it was a tick. The tick had attached itself to the man's eyeball, so an optometrist removed it with tweezers and sent him home with some antibiotic and steroid eye drops. Prater says he uses bug repellent, but as he puts it so well, you can't spray it in your eyes. Tales from the Road. A two-and-a-half-year-old boy in Chisago County, Minnesota, wanted to go back to the county fair and he just happened to have a toy battery-powered John Deere tractor with its trademark green chassis and yellow wheels, and he just happened to remember how to get to the fair. He stayed on the sidewalk the whole way and entered the fairgrounds through a back gate. Police took a call that a toddler had gone missing. They found him minutes later in the middle of the fairgrounds on his little tractor, waiting to ride the tilt-a-whirl. The boy's father has removed the tractor's battery now, for at least the rest of the fair. Our road spill of the week hails from the New Orleans French Quarter, where the eastbound lanes of Rampart Street were closed overnight Monday and all of Tuesday morning as crews cleaned up syrup that had spilled when a truck's rubber bladder ruptured. An artist in Chicago is filling potholes with art. Jim Batcher says he's been patching potholes for six years using a mosaic technique he learned in Italy. Jim says he has no idea whether what he's doing is legal, but he says no one has said it isn't, according to police officers. 
Jim's Mosaic Tile Pothole Art features flowers, cats, and comfort foods. Jim says fixing a pothole is good, but that making it art is better. In Hackensack, New Jersey, a 2002 Mercedes SUV crept slowly out of a car wash and then shot forward quickly directly over a bank and into the Hackensack River. The driver and her daughter swam to safety with some help. The driver had accidentally hit the gas pedal. Quoting a fire department official, Unfortunately, there's no rules that say there has to be a guardrail there. Not to dwell on the alligator thing, but just as Chicago had shipped its misplaced gator off to Florida, there has been a fourth gator sighting in Pittsburgh. That out-of-place reptile is described as docile and friendly, which doesn't sound like something an alligator would be. And in Loretto, Tennessee, police warned the public about gators on meth after arresting a man accused of flushing methamphetamines down a toilet to avoid arrest. Police say the stuff flushed by the Loretto locals ends up in retention ponds visited by ducks and geese, creating stoned waterfowl. And they say that if the meth makes its way to the Tennessee River, quote, we could create meth gators. The police department issued this warning, quote, on a more or less serious note. A Texas woman complains that her family photo being taken at a state park was ruined when a smiling woman photobombed the shot by burying one of her breasts for the camera. Quoting the complainant, you see her boob, nipple, everything. The kids were watching her. Quoting the woman's Facebook complaint, we were trying to create memories. Instead, she got a mammary she'd rather forget. Maybe it's the heat. It's so hot, the folks at the National Weather Service office in Omaha put a pan of biscuits in a car to see if they'd bake. Meteorologists love to measure things, and they found that the temperature of the pan got up to 185 degrees. The biscuits rose inside of 45 minutes, eventually browned, and were nearly cooked enough to eat after eight hours, albeit still a little bit doughy in the center. The scientists say they did the experiment to remind parents and pet owners how hot it can get in a car in the summer, although it wouldn't surprise us to see them begin to report the biscuit index. It's been so hot that a Utah boy used slightly deceptive advertising to make some coin selling root beer by making the word root very, very, very small on his sign that read, Ice Cold Root Beer. This made the local news in Salt Lake City after police got calls from concerned citizens that a preteen boy was openly selling beer on the streets. It wasn't until they got there that police read the very, very, very small print that said root. Utah Senator Mitt Romney praised the boy's misleading marketing, tweeting, A lesson in reading the fine print. The future is bright for this young entrepreneur. And it is so hot, penguins are going out for sushi. In New Zealand, two small blue penguins have repeatedly invaded a sushi store in the coastal town of Wellington, even after police captured them and put them back on the shoreline. The penguins were actually looking for a nesting spot and did not accept a store worker's offer of fresh salmon. Once nested in July, the eggs pop out in August. And finally, if someone tries to sell you a bed of nails, don't buy it. It's stolen. The Cincinnati Circus Company says a black homesteader Challenger trailer was taken from its private parking lot. The ringmaster posted a photo of the thieves towing the trailer away with a truck. The show must go on. So for now, the Cincinnati Circus Company has been borrowing stuff from other circuses, hoping the thief will just leave the trailer somewhere and anonymously point to its location. Quoting the circus aerialist, you've impacted a small business and everyone who works for it in a very harmful way. So if you see it, call the police. The circus trailer contains a coffin, an electric chair, and a bed of nails. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.